everybody, and welcome to this bonus episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Unfortunately, today's episode is brought to you for very, very sad reasons. But before we get into that, I will tell you something more uplifting. I just got back from a month in Edinburgh, Scotland, doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for the third time. I would argue that it went very well, though I'm sure there are many metrics by which you could measure how well an Edinburgh festival did or didn't go. It went well for me in that I became a much stronger comedian. I got some great reviews, and I feel like I developed a show that I'm very proud of, and now hopefully I could take places. I don't know how, and I don't know where, but I have ambitions and excitement and and great hopes and dreams. Other than that, our baby is due, please God, in seven weeks, so I'm very excited on that measure as well. Okay, now to a more somber tone. While I was in Edinburgh, a very, very tragic thing occurred. Um, my former manager and friend, David Kimowitz, was murdered in his home in New Jersey. There's no nice way to put that. It's just a horrible, terrible, tragic thing. He, not only David, but his au pair was murdered as well. A 26-year-old named Karen L. Bermudez Rodriguez, whom I didn't know, but doesn't make it any less tragic, of course, that she was also murdered. It was such a strange, surreal thing. I remember I found out the news and I posted, I didn't even know how to handle it or process it, but I just posted that the world would miss him. And then later in the day, my head was still spinning because I'm like, what? He was murdered in his home? How, how does that even happen? How? And I went and Googled an article in it and I was quoted. They'd found, whoever the journalist was, had found what I had posted and it said, Comedian Daniel Lobel said, and just seeing my name when I didn't expect to see it in the context of such a uh, tragic thing, I, I, I didn't know what to do um, with that information. I just, it, it, was, it was surreal and weird and, uh, and horrible, just horrible. So anyway, what can we do now? I've already made a donation. My hope and intention is to make more donations. Um, but you can help as well, even though you didn't know the person, hopefully. Just the fact that uh, you are part of this collective humanity and knowing that this man has a wife who is now a widow and two little children who are now fatherless, um, hopefully you'll want to lend some help to that. And you can do so by sending a check in the mail to 10 Prospect Road, Livingston, New Jersey, zip code 07039, to the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund. Or easier, perhaps, you can Venmo at the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund, or on Zeal, it's the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund at gmail.com. You can also email the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund at gmail.com to send stories, pictures, or memories, if you have any, with David Kimowitz so they can be shared with his family. Very, very sad. But now we at least have the opportunity to do whatever we can to help the family. I don't have anything else to say on that at the moment, except that the whole situation was sad. It was surreal. It was weird for me to see my name involved in it. And, uh, in some level, it brought home the connection. I mean, he was my first manager, and uh, we went we went to Scotland together to record my first album. 
I think I was not his first, but perhaps second client ever. And uh, he was a sweet, wonderful guy. Uh, didn't work out for us business-wise, but we stayed friends nonetheless. And um, great loss to this world. Now, if that wasn't sad enough, also while I was gone, another comedy manager unfortunately passed away and left this world. And it happened around the same time, within a few days of each other. And I think this kind of got overshadowed because this was obviously a um, less shocking thing. People saw it coming. It, it, I, I don't know. It was. It's not like the man was murdered in his home, but it's. It doesn't make it any less devastating to to people who knew him or to his family. Howard Lapidus uh, died, who is a legendary talent manager, who's responsible for many of the things you may love, like the Man Show, or uh, Tom Green's show, or Freddie Got Fingered. He passed away around the same time after a battle with colon cancer, and he also left behind a family. Now, oddly enough, Howard, somebody who I had very little to do with, uh, and I have an interview with him, and David, someone who I had a lot to do with, and I don't have an interview with him. But I did interview Howard Lapidus. He came up to me one night in the improv. I, I think he liked my set, and we started talking. And we hit it off, and I thought, what an interesting, fascinating guy. I said, I'd like to interview you and get your story recorded. Uh, I don't know what I'll do with it. I didn't have a plan for it. It's not an episode of Modern Day Philosophers. And uh, I feel now, at least in memory of the man, to honor him, I should release this interview. I've been sitting on it for a while. And so you can now listen to my talk with a, a guy who did a lot behind the scenes in comedy and lived a fascinating life and brought so much laughter to the world through his work. A very sweet man in my short experience with him. Uh, please enjoy this conversation with talent manager, no longer with us, may he rest in peace, Howard Lapidus. Enjoy. I'm sitting with Howard Lapidus. Uh, I've had the opportunity of interviewing over a thousand comedians, and it occurred to me I've never interviewed one comedy manager. And uh, I met you at the improv, and we started talking, and I found your story fascinating. And I haven't felt this excited to talk to anyone in a very long time because I'm, I'm so used to talking to the same kind of people, uh, comedians. So I'm very honored that you, you've given me this time, and thank you. Everything that I told you at the improv was a lie. <laughs> I was just trying to get on your show. Well, then I'm, I'm honored to be in the company of such a talented liar. <laughs> well, that's what I do for a living. Anyway, um, um, well, thanks. Um, you should talk to more managers. Yeah. There are many good ones out there. Well, I, I went home after meeting you, and I did a, a Google search and found out that you were involved in a lot of things that I love. Uh, oh. Freddie Got Fingered being one of them. And I want to get to all of that, and uh, but I want to start at the beginning. To me, it's very fascinating, to, uh, somebody who's put their life into, into comedy but doesn't do comedy. And where does that drive come from, and, and, and where does it start? And, and uh, well, let's, let's start at the very beginning. 
Tell me well, about the, the, the comedy is, you know, I'm probably talking to people that love comedy. Uh, so therefore, you, you, you know about who, you know, the people listening to this know about that gene that you get stuck with. Uh, some people are able to use that gene and go on stage and actually be funny. And some uh, use that gene to appreciate funny. And, and the latter, you know, I really do appreciate it and have for a long time um, and studied it from a, uh, a distance and then got involved uh, in comedy. I guess uh, I kind of, by accident, but, uh, you know, everybody kind of falls into it by accident. Well, let's get into the by accident. How, how did you wind up in comedy by accident? I was a radio guy. I was on the radio for a long time. And I, I was doing radio Where? funny. Uh, a lot of places. Uh, I, my hometown's Buffalo. I started there and went back there uh, at some point. I, I went to school in Boston and worked in Boston. I had major markets under my belt by the time I graduated college. So uh, I ended up in uh, Detroit, where else? Uh, Toronto, Ottawa, uh, L.A. a little bit. I uh, got hired in L.A. and quit. And what was the show about that you were doing? It was rock and roll radio. So you were uh, playing songs and talking? Playing the hits. Okay. Playing the hits and and uh, trying to be somewhat funny in between that. But there's funny and then there's radio funny. Uh-huh. And radio funny is not that funny, but uh, you know. So it was uh, it was more uh, you know more to show personality than phenomenal skill at uh, crafting a, a bit. So where how did it begin that you wound up in radio? Where where did this? That start? just started when I was a kid. Uh, I said that that's what I was going to do. Uh, I I was a heavy radio addict, and. Um, Pretty well knew from the time I was twelve that I was headed, heading in that direction and did, and uh, did it for as long as I. I did until I got bored with it. You got bored with it? Yeah. Tell me about that. Radio, you know, the clock goes around and it goes around and it goes around again, and and um, yeah, that's a number of years, uh, but it just got. Uh, you know, I, I want. I, I didn't think I was going to be uh, a zillionaire by doing radio. I, I, I should have had more confidence in myself, probably. But but uh, uh, I wanted to see what else was there. And uh, I, I was running a radio station, and uh, I was a kid, um, and I didn't get along with the general manager. And that's I, common. I, I, I walked and, <laughs> and kept walking. I, I built uh, my college radio station when I, I went to Baruch College. And the radio station was the same one from like 1977 that we were working with. And mm -hmm. it was all antiquated equipment. And I made a, a huge uh, campaign to get a new radio station. And I was thrown in front of all the, the people with money at Baruch College. It was very nerve wracking. I went into this meeting and I had to ask for a $25,000 budget. I've never asked for anything from like, you know, uh, this was my, like my very first uh, time sitting in front of executives essentially. And I, I pitched them on, on, you know, what's funny was that I had to pitch them on the idea of a radio station because they're a business college and they really didn't see the value of the radio station at all. So I had to explain to them how it could be valuable to the school. And I made this whole pitch and, and then uh, I was wait, I was so nervous. And they, they just said, yeah, okay. And they, <laughs> you can have the, so you got the 25 grand. Yeah. Let's call those guys today. I know. <laughs> I was like, that's it. I, I, they said, what do you mean? That's it. I said, that's it. I just get the money. They go, well, don't, don't, 
test us. We'll, don't make us think about it too much. Yeah. I said, okay, great. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> I ran back upstairs. and There you go. And we, we ripped out the old station and made a new one. College radios, college radios, college radio. I was in it for my my run and um, uh, great experience, actually. So, so I uh, I tip my hat to you uh, making all that work. It was the only part of college I liked. Probably me too. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Um, but um, went from radio to concert promotion during that part of my life. Um, comedy clubs uh, at that point in time. Uh, Improv in New York was open. Comedy Store in L.A. was open. Improv wasn't open yet. Um, Laugh Factory wasn't open yet. So that was pretty much it. And then stuff in between, there was very little comedy uh, on the club level in between the coasts. Uh, and I was at the time in Ottawa, Canada, and and you got out there because of radio. radio yeah, radio. Just just the radio journey took me there. So so, um, and I had quit radio there, and then I was in the concert promotion business there, and for most of Eastern Canada, and um, somebody opened a small comedy club in the basement of a Lebanese restaurant in Ottawa, and I got wind of this and, and ran down there, and I said, "Oh, this is good." You know, for me, mm -hmm. I started hanging out in there and then started to work with them on booking and, you know, how do we get comics here? And I don't know. I picked up the phone. I called the Improv in New York. You got any comics down there <laughs> that are looking for work? And yes, all of them. And uh, we started booking people uh, into Canada and we were booking the likes of uh, Larry Miller, Jerry Seinfeld, and the list goes on. Uh, brought Bob Saget from California up and, you know, did... Started to meet a lot of people. So this was your first step into the world of comedy. Yes. And 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 we talked a little bit about this at the improv, but I want to get it in the interview. So let's talk about did you have personal ambitions to get on stage? I mean, you are coming from being an on air personality to now working behind the scenes. When did I, I, I may have told this told you the story. There's I have one story about about being on stage. It's one and only one story. And and uh, and uh, this, 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 uh, I remembered this. Uh, I was talking to Elaine Boozler um, at a wedding a few years back, and we were complaining that the only time everybody sees everybody is at a memorial service. And unfortunately, that's what happens because everybody's either on the road, then there's a memorial service, and that's when you see everybody. And she said, You know, I'm going to have a party at my house for just nothing. No memorial service, just to have a party, just so everybody shows up and we get together, just have a good time and with no morose agenda. I said, great, just tell me when it is, I'll be there. She goes, you can't come. Now, what do you mean I can't come? She says, well, you've never been on stage. Uh-huh. I said, well, uh, that sucks. I mean, I got a lot of blood on the walls of comedy clubs all over the place. <laughs> I mean, I've been right. doing this for... You know, a few decades. I, I, you know, I I, I want to show up. I know everybody there. No, no, you're 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 a manager. You're not a comedian. You've never been on stage. And then I thought I remembered it back back in the days when that place opened up in that Lebanese restaurant. My friends came to me and said, "Why don't you try it?" And and I, I said, "Well, you know, I, okay, maybe that might be fun." So I talked to the guy, and a couple weeks out, he books me on the amateur night, and um, I go home and I yank out every George Carlin and Robert Klein album I got, and I, I copy everything down. I steal everything, because <laughs> I don't know any better. Right. I just steal everything. And, and uh, 
put it together. They gave me five minutes. And we go down there the night, and uh, I said to a friend of mine, I said, time me if you don't mind. Uh, I want to see how long this comes out. He goes, okay. They introduced me. I go up there, and now I'm in like a suspended animation. I, I, I'm not even, I don't know which end is up or down. I can hear the audience. There's maybe 25 people there. And um, I can hear myself talking, and I hear some laughter, but I'm not sure it's in the right spot. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and then I say, thank you very much. Good night. I sit back down next to my friend. I said, how long did I do? And he says, 47 seconds. <laughs> I told that story to Boozler, and she says, all right, you qualify. You can come. <laughs> <laughs> so so what is that like? Because you, you are part of this uh, sort of this comedy fraternity, but you're also an outsider to the comedians. Is that something that bothers you, or how, how do you how do you it? it? it um, it it never bothered me as a manager. I never uh, let people know for a long time, and that doesn't quite matter. But um, uh, I did own uh, a bunch of comedy clubs, and I never wanted comedians to know that I was a club owner. Not that club owners are bad, mm -hmm. but there's a perception, and I didn't want that perception uh, of the you know money grubbing club owner which isn't true there's the phenomenal club owners and uh, there's people that have built this business to what it is um and then there were some people that thought hey you know all we have to do is put up a microphone and we don't have to pay five guys in a band now we're a comedy club those are the people who were kind of a pain in the neck and didn't have a love of the art uh you know when they put their shingle up and just put it up to put it up uh and just take up space in their bar but um I, I didn't want that perception, so um, I kind of uh, I kept my clubs until circa nineteen ninety nine, and then. Uh, so you were an undercover comedy club owner. Oh, nah, undercover, I just didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. You weren't advertising. I wasn't advertising. I mean, a lot of people knew. Obviously, a mm -hmm. lot of people knew. Cause yeah, I, I employed a lot of people. But there, you saw there was some shame in it or something. It wasn't. I think shame is not a great word. It, it's just that um, um, I, I, I think, th not shame at all. It's just that uh, club owners are on the other side. Mm -hmm. I want to be on the uh, the creative side and not necessarily the business side, or at least I want to straddle. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to make sure everybody gets paid properly. Uh, and at the same time, um, you know, I, 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 I can sit and listen all night until I'm the last guy there. So, um, the, you know, there, there was that part of it. Um, you know, it also, as a, as a manager coming up, and having the clubs, and my clients know I had the clubs, but but having the clubs, um, I could tell, I would know firsthand uh, if I'm getting the truth from a club. Let's say I've got somebody booked in Memphis, Tennessee, and and uh, you know I pretty well know um, how that business rolls, and uh, you know uh, w what the audiences are, you know, like what their nights are like, and uh, you know. Uh, uh, are we, uh, you know, how much are they charging? Are they lying to us about ticket price? Uh, you know, are they lying to us about capacity? Mm -hmm. I, I, I knew how to cut through all that stuff real, real, real fast. So, so from from your days booking the Lebanese restaurant, which, which did did it have a name that that club? Yeah, uh, it was called Hiccups. Hiccups, which I, I then stole. I stole the name and, and opened Hiccups in Rochester, New York. Actually, okay. So so so, where did it become that you you went from there to to owning clubs to managing comedians? What was the turning point? 
What, uh, what had, it, it's uh, strange. I, I got out of the concert business. I ended up in uh, 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 some family business. Uh, my dad wasn't feeling well, so I, I went back home to Buffalo and helped with his business, and that turned into three years with my brother and I um, getting involved in stuff way outside of show business, and we did fairly well with... Uh, what was that business? Low-cost, long-distance telephone service, which was the... Early, early, early days of uh, competing with the uh, AT and T. Was it the cards where you scratch off? And- no, it was. It was. Uh, you, you, we would issue codes. You would you would dial seven digit number, get a dial tone, uh, and then uh, you'd get a, a, a tone, and then you'd punch in your code. Then you would dial your number. So by the time you finished and you got somebody at a discount, you'd punched in a zillion numbers. Mm-hmm. But uh, we were early with that, and. Uh, did very well with. I it. remember those yeah. those codes, yeah. Because my mom is from Scotland, so I used to always have these the codes to call my grandma. And, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, we were selling codes and uh, uh, got out of that business and did well and uh, wondered what would be next. And uh, um, my brother said, "Let's open up some sports bars," and we know nothing about opening a bar. Uh, so I, I, I had a friend that opened some sports bars. I called a mutual friend of the friend that owned the sports bar. I said, didn't Ralph own some sports bars? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Why? I said, well, maybe we'll open a few up because we got we got some change and, you know, we want to get into some business. He said, oh, you don't want to do that. I said, oh, okay, what do I want to do? He said, you want to be in the comedy club business. And he proceeded to lay out a uh, a formula that he had. Uh-huh. Uh, working with uh, Mark Breslin uh, from Yuck Yucks in Toronto, and I, I knew Breslin, and I contacted him, and I said, hey, you want to come to the States? Mm-hmm. And we made a deal and uh, started opening clubs in the States under the Yuck Yucks banner. So what was the first club? First Yuck Yucks I opened was in Buffalo. In the home, at home? Yeah. And and then from that point until you opened another one, how long did it take? Six months. So you were moving fast. Yeah, because it was there. You know, it was the the it was at the early '80s. The boom was starting to really you know take shape. Um, we figured out how to do it for really cheap, and uh, moved to uh, it, it, to Rochester next, which is 70 miles down the road, and just kept you know. Finding, uh, finding, and partnering with bars that had extra room that they didn't know how to monetize. Wow, this is this is pretty ambitious. Yeah, it was something to do. We were kids. Yeah. So, how many clubs did you wind up owning? It depends on when you looked. Um, <laughs> probably up to up to maybe five or six at, a, at any at the most, and then down to one at the end. Rochester was the last one I closed. And you had everybody going through the same circuit, club to club, and. Pretty much. Um, we were working with a lot of the Canadian acts because uh, there's some really strong talent out of Toronto. Um, People we would know? Uh, well, I ended up signing a lot of them. Um, Norm MacDonald. Uh, others that you probably wouldn't know who are down here uh, with major writing gigs now. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Bullard, Howard Buskang, executive producers of many a sitcom. Um, and it just, you know, just took it from there. Who was uh, the first comedian you signed? Mike McDonald from Canada. Oh, yeah. I know him. And, uh, and what was the impetus behind that? You realized that was, uh, that happened in, um, that happened in, uh, 
early. That happened like before the clubs. That happened when I was still in Ottawa. He's from Mike is from Ottawa, uh-huh. and uh, uh, I was uh, booking a um, a rock and roll club called Barrymore's in Ottawa, and. I was. It was an old theater, and I was upstairs at, uh, near the top of where the balcony was, and there's some actress on stage. Guy comes up to me and says, "Hey, you're the guy that does the concerts." I go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he said, "Well, are you ever looking for an opening act?" And the truth is, is most acts are packaged on the road with opening acts, and the days of the opening act were few and far between. I said, "Really, no." I said, why? He says, well, I'm a comedian. I said, oh, that's that's interesting. I said, do you work at um, at Hiccups? Because that had just opened. He goes, no, I haven't worked there yet. I said, so where do you comedy? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, well, and just uh, starting. And uh, I said, well, now, now I want to get rid of the guy. I said, I said here's my card. I give him my card. I said, when you're going to go up someplace, let me know. I'd be very interested in coming to hear you. I learned never do that. But now, <laughs> because you end up going to a thousand places. But then it was, it was fine. But two weeks later, he calls me up and says, I'm going to be on at, at, uh, at this club called Rotters. And it's a, 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 what was then a punk club in the early stages of punk. And I knew I wanted to get down there anyway and see what that scene was. Being a promoter, I see, you know, is there business in that? Is there, is there not? What is it? Uh, so I said, you're going to go on. It's a music club. He says, yeah, I'm going to go on in between the acts. I said, oh, okay. So it's a Friday night. I see it comes up in my book. I said, you know what? I'll show up down there. And, and, um, and, and, and I go there and uh, it's, it's Mike McDonald and, and band plays. And the place is just rocking. Band breaks place calms down he goes up to do comedy now you know doing comedy after a 1978 punk band <laughs> in 1978 when this is fresh and new and amazing uh not the not the easiest thing to do he does close to 45 minutes i'm saying who is this guy the 45 minutes <laughs> you, right. you know? i mean i knew enough then that that's a lot of time and it's stuff I hadn't heard. Some I had heard, but there's stuff, a lot of original stuff. And um, I thought it was pretty good. And I stick around and he said, what do you think? And I told him, I said, I just don't have any opening acts and this is what I do. But I was impressed. He says, well, stay, stay for another set and I'm going to do the set again. Okay. Band plays, he goes up again. I'm thinking I'm going to hear the same stuff as I heard, you know, an hour and a half earlier. No, I hear a fresh 45 minutes. And that was too much for me to handle. I said, come here, we have to have a conversation. (laughs) I don't really know how to do this, but I want to do this. And uh, I said, I want to manage you. And uh, and did and started managing. Mike. So what, what when you say you did, what were the first things you did as a manager? You, you're coming at it completely. Fresh. I have no idea what the, uh, to do. Um, I uh, I told I had a variety of partners in the uh, concert business, and I mentioned it to the partners that you know this kid just in case we're looking for somebody. He's pretty interesting. And sure enough, I get a call from my Toronto partner who said he had. Uh, Graham Parker and Rumor playing at a club there and needed an opening act, would 
my guy be interested in coming down and doing comedy uh, at this club? And I said, yes. So I booked that. <laughs> that was a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Cost us three hundred dollars to get there and do the, the gig, but there, there was a hundred dollars, and and just started to, um, to to find different things for him to do, um, and that lasted for a couple of years. And when I got out of the business, I was out of the business, and Mike and I went our separate ways for a few years, and then got back together when I came back in the business and after the phone up. codes. Yeah, after the phone bet. I, um, uh, I, I, when I came back in and opened up clubs, Mike came back. So he was the first one you re-signed as well? Yeah. So he was your one and only client before the phone codes? And yeah. Then, and then you picked up where you left off with him? I kind of picked up where I left off and signed a few more of the Canadian guys. Like Norm MacDonald uh, uh, was out of Ottawa. Tell me I, the story of signing Norm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Norm... Uh, came down on a package he was uh he was featuring he was he was in the middle i'd never for the life of me remember who was headlining that weekend but norm was uh in the middle and i he gets up there and he's really young at the time and and uh i loved the stuff i loved his material because it was different the audience didn't quite get it mm-hmm. and i liked that off-putting of the audience because then you know that they're they're fighting to listen or figure it out, and uh, and then then I watch would watch him control it, uh-huh. and I found it very interesting. Um, he was an interesting guy, um, and uh, we we all kind of moved to California around the same time, so uh, we picked up where you know in California where we never left off, and and. Uh, um, Got him uh, uh, signed by, uh, along with the other guys, we, we signed with an agency called Spotlight at the time. And Spotlight uh, no longer in existence, but Spotlight had everybody uh, in comedy, virtually everybody in comedy. Um, they'd sit outside the uh, the Letterman show and the Tonight Show and just pick off the comics as they were leaving. Uh, Leno, uh, all the work that Leno did in the 80s and most of the 90s was all Spotlight booked. Uh, Seinfeld also, uh, Larry Miller, right down the list. And, um, and so I ended up working with those guys a lot and got to know more people and just kept growing. Mm-hmm. So um, I signed uh, Bullard and Busgang and uh, Norm MacDonald and Mike MacDonald and, and signed those guys with Spotlight and had them on the road. And there was a good road business back then. And that was mostly what you did as a manager at the time was sending them to clubs? At that point, yes. And then um, working to, when they're in town, get them uh, introduced to producers and out on auditions. It was in the days of Roseanne had already hit. So now at Roseanne and Cosby, now we've got a couple of stand-ups that are successful in uh, half-hour television. So it's let's go find half, you know, let's go find stand-ups. And Tim Allen was next and Brett Butler after that. So it was that. like a gold rush, you know. For- it kind of was, yeah. Um, everybody was really pushing to get that sitcom. If you count on both hands, those were the successful stand-ups who were sitcoms. Not, not a lot, but, but the perception was is, Stand-ups were the only ones that could do sitcoms, so you had to get that sitcom. And, there, and back then, the networks were handing out holding deals, maybe in, in the 80s and into the 90s, 150000 bucks to hold for a year. It was a lot of money to put in a comic's pocket to not have to do much. Mm-hmm. So they could still work and do live stuff, but they'd, they'd be beholden to that network 
if they had an idea that they wanted to develop or vice versa. Right. So, so, so where was the the big excitement for you? Was it in getting the deals or, or what? Um, the big excitement for me is when a client killed, mm-hmm. beginning and end of story. The deals to me, I mean, I'll say this now, is it's many years later. The, the deals were kind of secondary. I, I, I just loved watching that audience pop. And, and I knew the stuff. I, I knew their material really well. And I knew what worked, when worked, how it worked. And, you know, and I, I, and I, I would know, um, you know, are they, are they going to finish this one or are they going to go to the left on this one? To, you know, you're kind of able to figure out your guys and, and listen to the audience and listen to the guy and see. It was fun to figure out which way they're going to go with this. You know, are they going to stick to script or, or move off of it? Well, what were some things that you learned that were significant along the way as a manager? Uh, I, I promoted George Carlin at the National Arts Center in Ottawa, two shows one night. And George was doing two and a half hours there, uh, a show. And um, it was sold out. So my work, I could get done that afternoon because all the numbers were in. Once all the numbers are in, I could quickly do the work. You know, mm-hmm. In the concert business, I, I thought I was in the music business or, or the comedy business. I wasn't. I was in the numbers business. And, you know, you open up a business, it goes for one night, and you close that business that night. Everybody gets paid. You go home and start again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rarely see the shows. Carl and I really wanted to see. I got my work done. It was sold out. It was good. So there was no errant money to be collected. Everything was where it was supposed to be. And I went into the house and took a seat and um, watched the first show and was amazed to watch Carlin work. Um, and then the house clears and in comes the second show. And I said, I'm going to see this again. And then I watched the second show. He's virtually doing the same set, but I don't know this. I don't, I'm nowhere near sophisticated to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm maybe one step past thinking that comics are making it up as they go along, you know, mm-hmm. which we know right. is true. They make it up as they go along. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, you know, and then I'm watching the stuff and then I'm watching him. I, I watched in that second show how he would listen to the audience and then make his quick left turns where I would know from watching the first show where the joke maybe going I would watch him not go there because it wasn't going to be strong enough and he'd take something else on and and move it and watch his transitions and watch how smooth he, he was and 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 how he just glided through it and could listen and really listen to that audience because the audience told him everything and and then he would react to what they were reacting to and then give them more of it and be able to build that act and make it work different from the first show, but just as successful. And uh, I, I took serious notes that night and I still remember that night and it was a long time ago. So, so you're saying, you, when, in other words, what you learned was how to watch a comic work masterfully and, and I sure did use that. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, you know, class one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was my first class, you know, uh, I, uh, I was still a freshman, right. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, it got me on board because I found it to be externally fascinating. I mean, I grew up and, and my father was very big on comedy and would watch the Sullivan show 
back in those days. And when the comics would come on, you know, the house would quiet down. We would watch the comedians, you know, the Alan Kings of the world and the Jackie Masons and and those guys. And and um, so I was used to that, and I knew it would make my father laugh. So I wouldn't want to pay attention to what what was making him laugh, and uh, and kind of figured that out and, and developed a. That's got to be where it all stems from. Is is it doing something that you knew your dad would be into? There's always that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, he, he he never uh, understood what a disc jockey was, so you uh-huh. know I could never uh, explain to him why I was off to the races and making money that other people were paying me to play records all day. Uh-huh. Well, what about your your dad? Was always in the phone business then? No, my dad wasn't in the phone business at all. My my dad was the um, he was a, a hustler. He was a uh, as I was growing up, he was selling uh, windows, and then he was selling aluminum siding, and then ended up, uh, he became the world's largest manufacturer of above-ground swimming pools. Oh, wow. He figured out how to do that and did very well at it. And your mom? Housewife. Okay. Mother of four kids who, who tormented her. <laughs> I'm also one of four kids. There you go. What was it like growing up uh, in Buffalo? What were some things you liked to do as a kid? I, I saw a lot of movies as a kid. You know, I figured out how to use the bus system really early and go downtown and watch the movies. That's where the movies were. And in high school, I was managing rock and roll bands. So that was so the that's kind of, where management began. Kind of the precursor to everything was uh, I couldn't play in the band, so uh, I figured out how to uh, play on the phone. And sell the band. So, so it's, a, it's always been kind of like you—you you want to be involved. You didn't want to. You couldn't play in the band, but you want to be part of. Oh, it. I want to be you, part of it. Yeah. You, you yeah. don't do the stand-up, but you want to be part. No, of it. and I—I I don't play in the concerts. I present them. Right. You know, I was—I'm always that guy. How did you get into managing bands in high school? Um, there were a bunch of guys that were in a band, and we were, were these high school bands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, they're I was picturing they're, a high school kid showing up at the rock club. No, that would have been good. No, uh, no, there were uh, bands. Uh, you know, everybody kept at the same level, starting out at the same time. And uh, my best friend was a real technical guy and knew, taught himself the equipment, and I knew how to get on the phone. So uh, we were commissioning, I think, twenty percent, and. He would take 10 for doing, taking care of all the equipment, making sure that everything was working and got there and was, was fine. And, and I would make sure that the, there was money at the end of the tunnel. So, so. T- talk to me about knowing how to get on the phone. What, are, what are do, you, do you think are your strengths in, the, in that? Uh, what, have you, uh, what can you tell somebody in terms of how, how, how do you get on the phone right? What are some of the tricks of the trade? Um, you dial it. <laughs> I know. Um, no, the, the, it's, look, you, you have to, if you're cold calling, you've got to get it done really quickly and you've got to, you know, get to the point really quickly. And basically, um, you know, it's their lucky day. They're going to make money because of this phone call. Yeah, but you don't say it that way. Mm-hmm. But, but um, and they're very friendly, almost like you've known them and, and have them almost question, gee, I, I think I have met this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it's, uh, you know enough about who you're calling before you get there and um, and take it from there. And, and I, I figured that out. I mean, in Buffalo, I mean, there were 10 calls I had to make. That was it, 10 clubs. And you get to know everybody after a while. And, it, and, and, and it's about delivering, again, going back to, uh, you've got to deliver them quality. They have to be able to trust what you've got. 
if it's coming from you, you've got a reputation on the line and it's going to be good. So, uh, you know, that, that was how I tried to build that up, that if I'm calling and I'm talking about somebody new, hey, this is something I've seen that you're going to be first to get. You want this. And, you know, and then I'll always run a sale and then take their eyeballs out later. <laughs> Do you think you picked up a lot of your sales uh, technique from your dad? Yes. Watching him and working with him? Just listening, I guess. Uh, I guess just listening, I, I suppose. Uh, I mean, he never sat me down and said, so this is how you sell. Not really. He would tell me about how to sell what he sold. But, I mean, he was off the streets by then anyway. He had guys working for him. Uh, at one point, he had 800 guys a night in houses all over North America. So it was pretty interesting operation. Um, and I got to know a lot of his salesmen, albeit I wasn't in that business, but I knew the guys. Mm -hmm. And kind of, um, kind of watched them work. Um, and then there was a point where I'd, I'd go out with a, f a few of them and, and uh, watch them actually work firsthand and um, think that, you know, oh, you're going to be able to go back and get that one. And they look at me and go, no, we're in the car. <laughs> We've never seen that again. And, and and learning, you know, how that one works. So it's, it's all about closing it right away. It's, a, you, it's they're, they're closing on hello. Those guys were closing on hello. And, I mean, I learned things from those guys, little things that, you know, when you enter a living room, first of all, you want a husband and wife. If you're selling a, a high-ticket item like that, like mm -hmm. a swimming pool, husband and wife have to be there. Got to be, because you're going to want the signature. For the financing, you're going to need both signatures anyway. If you're pitching what they call a one-legger, don't waste your time. Yeah. So make sure they're both there. When you walk into the room, you figure out quickly which one, which chair is the, the man's chair mm. and sit at it. Sit in the man's chair. Mm -hmm. Throws throws him right off. So he's now you 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 have him, <laughs> and, and uh, you know he's not in his comfort zone, and you keep him awake that way too, and you want him awake. And I mean little things like that. You know, if they, they ask if would you like a beer, sure, always take the beer, never drink it, never drink it. Never, Why? They never throw out anybody who hasn't touched their drink. Ah, it's little things. So I shouldn't have started drinking this bottle of water here. I guess. Oh yeah, you're not getting thrown out yet. <laughs> Time is it. good. <laughs> what year was it? What you moved to? I f officially moved in uh, the late '80s. I'd gotten divorced. I was in Buffalo. Got divorced. She didn't want to come to California. I said, "Well, that's where we're going." <laughs> you know, this is that, was, that ended it. Yeah, yeah. We're still to this day very friendly, but but uh, yeah, it wasn't for her, and you know, staying in Buffalo, where I had gone back to for a while, wasn't for me. So uh, you know, we had, at uh, during the eighties, we figured out how to own Buffalo mm -hmm. and and put comedy into Buffalo, and uh, did that. <laughs> And then uh, that that took a day, <laughs> so it got it kind of got you know what's next, you know. Yeah. And it was, uh, let's see what this Los Angeles is. So, so New York was never you, you know. I'd go to New York a lot uh, when I it was in Buffalo. I'd be in New York a lot. It was an hour in, in the plane, and it was fairly reasonable airfare, and I knew a lot of people. So I spent a lot of time uh, at the Improv and Catch a Rising Star and um, Comic Strip. And you were involved in the creation of Stand Up New York. You were telling me. I wasn't involved in the creation at all. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I knew uh, Carrie Hoffman, who 
created it. Um, it's funny you should mention that. He, uh, Saturday night out of nowhere, uh, he uh, IMs me out of nowhere, Kerry Hoffman. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. And he's, he does two things. He, Kerry he, he, set up Stand Up New York and did a, a great job, made a great club. And uh, then... Um, Moved on from there, and he loved singing. And Sinatra thing. He sings Sinatra. Yeah, he's all over the country singing. He makes money doing that. And and uh, so, uh, you know, this picture on Facebook is with the tuxedo. You know, just carry off. <laughs> um, but yeah, he contacted me. He says he's going to be out here at the end of April, and can we get together? Sure. He stayed a manager too. He became a manager. Um, I remember. I'd see him at the Montreal Comedy Festival every year, and I was one of the founding, I say founding, I had nothing to do with being a founder, but I was, as an industry person, one of the first people ever up there. And I went 25 straight years up there, nobody can break my record. Uh Uh, And then I quit. But uh, I have a lot of history with the Montreal Festival, I can tell you a lot about it. But but um, I'd like to hear it. There's nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, uh, but I'd see Carrie up there every year. Yeah. And um, I remember the first, uh, he would come up because he was, you know, young catcher or uh, stand up in New York. He was there as a club owner. And then he became a manager. And I remember he was managing Tom Hertz. I don't know if you know Tom. Tom, uh, executive producer of many a TV show now. He was started as a stand-up. In fact, I was watching last night Crowded House, which is new, and uh, he's on that one. I don't know if Carrie and Tom are still in business, but but uh, I remember Tom Hurts being one of his first clients. So, so I, I remember you telling me something about, did you advise Carrie when he was starting the club? or I probably did because I got a big mouth and I think I know everything. <laughs> so I'm sure I said something to Carrie. I was actually introduced to Carrie by Mark Breslin, who owns the Yuck Yucks chain in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me to Carrie, and um, that's how I got to know Carrie. Did you ever have a club in, in New York City? No. Never appealed to you? To do Never that? had the balls. And that ain't easy. You know, I, I knew everybody that had clubs. Uh, uh, Rick Newman uh, uh, had uh, Catch a Rising Star and uh, Richie Tinkin, uh, Comic Strip. And uh, uh, and uh, Richie and my wife uh, ended up in business with Adam Sandler. They were, she was West Coast, he was East Coast managing Adam. And Tinkin and um, his partner passed away. Oh, God. They managed Eddie Murphy forever. Mm-hmm. Um Bob. Oh, God, it's a shame. I can't remember his name. Anyway. Wax. Bob Wax. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Whew. That was close. <laughs> his office was in my building, too. I knew Bob. And Wow. I shouldn't be forgetting names. Um, I guess dead guys it's you can forget. It's, it's, it's yeah. okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bob would think that's funny, so that's what he said. Um, uh, yeah, but I, so I, I had an open door. In New York, early on, you know, I could go wherever I wanted, be and stand in the back, and you know where the comics were. And I tell my son about those days. My, my son is seventeen, very into comedy. Mm-hmm. He'll never make a dime in comedy. He writes a great joke, never make money doing it. He's he's hell bent on being a fireman in his fire academy this week, and th- that's what he does. Okay. But he loves comedy and knows everybody that's ever done it. His favorite comic of all time is Don Rickles, which tells you that, you know, he 
Right. He, he can tell you who the new guys are all day, but he goes with it's Rickles. Oh, Rickles is the best. Yeah. I, I took him to see Rickles last year. And it was kind of kind of strange because Don is not feeling great, but still working. Mm-hmm. And they they he comes out and he doesn't walk around anymore. He sits in a chair right. in front of he's got a band. And uh, I had heard most of the stuff already, and I'd seen the clips already, and my son's seeing it new and enjoying it, and the show's finished, and I look at him, and I said, do you want to go back and meet Don? And he just looks at me and goes, no, I want to go home. Hmm. And I, I got it. I know what he was saying to me. He said, I needed to see it. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to see him not feeling well in the back. I, I, I needed to see that. And uh, I respected that. He, he learned something from the old man. You have to be careful about who you meet. <laughs> who, who, who did you meet that was a disappointment to you? Alan King. Yeah. That was a disappointment to me? Yeah. Alan King. Why? Well, All right. So I talked about how my dad used to watch, right. and my, 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 my mom too. They, they would watch Sullivan and watch the comedians on Sullivan. And, and uh, Alan King big time Jewish comedian and Jewish household and here he comes and and he would kill. Alan King would kill every time. You know, it was always perfectly done. Never knew how the rabbit came out of the hat I do now, but then I didn't and I was amazed by it. It was tremendous and it made my parents laugh and this is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, cut to, I'm um, in Vegas with Mike McDonald. My dad died in 1980, so it's 84-ish, 85. And Alan King is is uh, is playing at the Riviera, and McDonald. We had the night off, and McDonald said, um, "You want to go see Alan King? I know him because uh, uh, I did the. Uh, this is McDonald talking. I did the third Young Comedian special at HBO, and Alan King was the host, so I got to know him. If you want to go, we can you know, make a call." I said, "Great, let's go." Mm-hmm. So we go down there, and we we get in, sit in the back, watch King work. It kills. Audience loved him. And um, at the uh, the end of the show, we, we go backstage, and I, and I meet King. And I, now it's good. Mm-hmm. And we're having a chat back there. It's me, McDonald, King's manager, who was a 12-year-old kid, literally. <laughs> He's like 22 years old, managing King. He's there, me, and, and, and um, we just start talking about comedy, and it was an interesting conversation. And here I am, you know, standing back, and was comedy with Alan King now. I'm, yeah. I'm starting to move along here. This is good. And uh, we all go our separate ways after about 20 minutes. And I go on a gamble for a while. McDonald's off doing something. And it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm going to go back to whatever hotel. I wasn't staying at the Riviera. Whatever hotel. I was going to grab a cab. McDonald's off doing something. And and um, I walk through this big, long bar at the Riviera. And, and it's three in the morning, and there's one guy sitting at the center of the bar, and only one guy at the bar, and I can see it's King. So I'm walking through, and I go up to him, go, Mr. King, how are you, Howard Louise? We met, oh, yeah, sit down, sit down. Huh. So I, I sit down, and uh, I'm, I feel like, oh, my God, this is, Alan King's just invited me to sit down, have a drink. I, I'm going to have a drink, okay. Um, and I say to him, I said, you know, Mr. King, before we get, you know, any kind of discussion here, there's something I got to say. He goes, oh, well, what do we got? I said, well, my father's gone almost five years now, but I got to tell you, 
you know, every time you were on a Sullivan show, you used to get him and he'd laugh. And I had these memories of my father and laughing at you. And it's just incredible that I'm sitting here and he goes, I get that all the time. <laughs> I go, you schmuck. <laughs> Oh, you're a schmuck. Now I get it. <laughs> and ended up running into him many times from that point on. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, the, the next time I saw him was at the Montreal Festival that summer. And I ran out and I got a bottle of Tangeray gin and put it in. And said, yeah, it's me. <laughs> you know, how you doing? Uh, it was a little disappointing. And uh, yeah, Jerry Lewis wasn't. You know, Jerry's 90 now, God bless him. But he was a pain in the neck. Um, you, you, you find out, you you, you got to be careful about meeting your heroes because they're never... Look, we, we paint people for a living. You know, we, we paint the perception of who these people are. That's what we do behind the curtain. And uh, when you know how that magic is made, you, you know, there's sometimes two different people. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful. Have you had clients that you, you regretted taking on and felt, how do, how do you paint the per- person if you don't like them? I never sign anybody I didn't like. That's number one. You don't do that. Um, you may grow not to like each other. That can happen. That's a two-way street. It can happen. Right. It's sometimes more intense than a marriage. Um, and, you know, you've got somebody's bread and butter and family counting on you. So there's a lot of pressure. <clears throat> and sometimes, it's, you know, it just doesn't work out. Um, Are there times when you've grown apart with a client and you've had these dilemmas where you're like, I still have to sell this guy, but I don't like him anymore? At that point, I resign. If that's going to happen, mm-hmm. I've resigned. Uh, because I can't do that. That's not right. It's not fair. Seems admirable. Then, what was I your- don't know uh, about admirable, but it's not. It's not. It's. I, I can't sell. I mean, look. Some people can sell anything, but I'm not going to sell a human being's talent for money uh, unless we're both making money for the right reasons. What was your first big score as a manager? I don't know. I don't. Signing Mike McDonald. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got me in the business. Um, um, having him say yes to, to some, you know, there's two guys that have no idea what they're doing saying yes to one another. And, I mean, to this day, uh, he calls me his manager and I call him my client, although we, we hardly speak. He's up in Canada and he does a lot of live stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I'm here and not, not that involved with comedy anymore, but I still love the guy. He's still your mo- your most important uh, No, there's no such thing. Ever- the most important client is the one I'm talking to at that moment. Everybody's just important as the next person. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. Were you with Norm when he got on SNL? Or was he with me? Or was he with you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. No, Norm was the first client I fired. Really? Yeah. He'll, he'll probably deny that because he probably doesn't remember it, and I don't blame him. Uh-huh. But he was. I got pissed. Yeah? Yeah. And how many clients have you fired over the years? Not many. Not too many. No, I've been fired by clients. Uh-huh. Maybe it probably balances out to about the same. Well, now, you, you wound up uh, producing, uh, we're getting cl- closer to, to the beginning when I talked about Freddie Got Finger, but yep. you wound up producing television for Tom Green and, yep. and, and for Adam Carolla. And, uh, where, did, where did that start, going into the production end of things? 
always, uh, once I got in, I said, oh, that looks like more fun than this. Uh-huh. Or doing both. Uh, and then I realized from guys that I learned from that uh, if you're producing for your client, you really are representing them. Some people say you're is a uh, conflict of interest far from it. It's the other way around. Because you're always in business with a lot of people on a production. If I'm if I'm producing a show and my clients, that's his show, and there are other producers and other companies involved, I've got that guy's back, mm-hmm. believe me. And i got a seat at the table, and that makes it easier to have his back. Like, they can't close me out of the door. And uh, that's an important thing. Is that a fear you have as a manager? You can be closed out of things? Well, you get closed out of, uh, you know, I mean, when you sell a client to a show, it's their show, and, you, you know, you don't have any right to be behind the door. Um, if you're a, a producer on the show, you have every right to be behind the door, if not being the one that decides who comes behind the door. So it's, um, you know, I, I, it's not a fear by any means. I mean, I'm, there's more shows that, you know, clients are involved in that I'm not a producer on than, than I am a producer on. But over the years, I've been in and out, you know. Mm-hmm. What was the first TV show that you produced? I don't remember. Really? Um, stand-up specials, for sure. Showtime and HBO. Um, those, I, you know, I could do a stand-up special in my sleep now. Really? Yeah, in my sleep. Because <laughs> uh, they're so much easier to do. You could do one. If you thought about it for 20 minutes, it's easy to do now. Mm-hmm. It was harder back then when, um, you know, back when Showtime was buying a lot of stuff. Uh, and HBO was buying a lot of stuff uh, in the in the 80s and in the 90s. They were buying comedy because people were consuming it. There was a time when I think I counted, uh, this is a ridiculous number of hours, but maybe 27 hours of comedy on television a week. Wow. Between uh, everything that uh, the pay networks were doing and uh, evening at the improv was all over the place in syndication. Um a comic strip live from the Laugh Factory was on Fox, and uh, and then the other cable networks being able to pick it up because it was cheap. It it was easy. It was inexpensive to produce. Certainly, um, the ones we were doing for the pay cables were a little bit more money because we put a little. They give us a little bit more money and make it look pretty. But uh, it's not about pretty. It's about the words. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your your relationship with Tom Green and how that started. I, uh, Pat Bullard, whose name I've mentioned in this, um, he produces everything that Reba's name is on. Well, back in those days, uh, Pat was a stand-up and then ended up, uh, I think Norm helped him get a job writing on the Roseanne show. Mm-hmm. And um, so Pat was doing that. And then Pat uh, has a brother in Toronto named Mike Bullard, who's extraordinarily funny. And they're they're their head works in the same matrix, you know, so I, I kind of understood both of them because they thought the same way. Uh, they, they were different in their own ways. They had different looks completely, and, but their head operated a lot of, I could see familiarity in how their head worked. The audience, you know, they would never see the two of them together. One was in the United States, one was in Canada. Mike Bullard, I signed him, and uh, uh, the Comedy Network had just come on the air in Canada. Not Comedy Central, but the Comedy Network of Canada still still exists. Um, and 
they developed a show and came to me, and it was called Open Mike with Mike McDonald. They wanted McDonald because he is then and even now, you can't get a ticket to see McDonald. He's that popular in Canada. So they wanted to develop a show for, you know, Open Mike with Mike McDonald. And then something came up. We got a sitcom on CBC. So that was the end of Open Mike with Mike McDonald. But they had this open mic thing. I said, well, guys, no problem on the open mic thing. We'll just make an open mic with Mike Bullard. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, I see. Yeah, you don't have to change anything. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike was terrific. A, uh, a terrific late night host. A real natural at it, as is his brother Pat. I mean, they were natural talk show hosts and knew how to handle the audience. And were these guys could spritz like nobody. I mean, they really, really damn fast and even though i know how they did it still fast you know and i could guess where they're going and still beat me someplace they're 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 that that both the bullet brothers are that good and um i, I sell the uh, the comedy network on mike bullard and uh, we were doing that show for the comedy network out of uh, the back of wayne gretzky's bar Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player, sure, had a bar in, in Toronto. And uh, it's the, the big room in the back is where they had the bar mitzvahs and the divorces and all that <laughs> stuff, you know. So, so, so um, bar mitzvahs and divorces, it's always. They go together. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, um, I remember we had an office for that show, was in a four floor walk up in this building across the street from where the bar was. And I'm with the head of the network, guy named Ed Robinson, and we were in the office and shooting the crap. And, and uh, now it's, we look at the time, we're going to head over to the show across the street. It's winter. It's like November. And there was always trouble getting an audience for this thing because <clears throat> we needed 100 people a night. You know, Not a lot of people knew about the show, and it's the bar wasn't really on a well-populated uh, uh, you know, walk, uh, tra you know, walking traffic there, you know, you couldn't just haul people in. Mm -hmm. So I, I step outside and I look across the street and I see there's a line to get into the building. I'm stunned. <laughs> you know, what could be going on in our show? So I said to Ed, I said, what's going on tonight that you know that I don't know that there's a, there, and, and there's four guys in the front and it's, 20 degrees, and, and they've got their shirts off, and they're eating heads of lettuce, and they've gotten written across their chest, let us in. <laughs> I said, what, 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 what is this? And, uh -huh. and Ed goes, oh, that's for Tom Green. I said, uh, take me to Mr. Green. I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, if this is going on, you know. I said, who is he? And he's, he's doing a cable access show at Ottawa, and we're, we're thinking of picking him up on the Comedy Network, and you should know him. I said, yes, I should. Uh -huh. And uh, we go into the the back and, and into the dressing room, and he introduces me to Tom, and I, uh, Mike Boyd's manager said, Tom figured, well, give me the time of day because he's on the show, and I purport to be the manager, so you should know me, I guess. And... and uh, um, he uh, he seemed he was very quiet. I'm trying to get him to open up. He's still quiet, but he, he was in pre-show mode. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I had figured that. So I kind of backed off. And he goes out there, and 
he was throwing milk at the audience. I mean, it, it was just pure mayhem going on. And I'm going, oh, this is yeah. for, this is for me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was at the, the punk shows. Uh, you know, you well, got, yeah, this is for me. Right. <laughs> you know, this I haven't seen this, um, and this is for me. So I, after the show, take him for a walk, and I go. This is for me, and let me tell you why I'm for you. And and uh, and so, what did that pitch go like? Uh, that was pretty much it. <laughs> this is for me, and this is why I'm for you. Why I'm for you is I have these clubs, and I have the. I didn't even have the clubs uh, pretty much anymore, and he and he wasn't going to be a club comic. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I wanted to see um, this uh, cable access show. Which he got to me right away. Um, you know, I was, by the time I got back to LA, that was waiting for me. And I saw that and I said, well, this has got to go to. Uh, uh, I started with MTV. And the reason I started with MTV is I was producing Loveline, uh, which is a still on the air on the radio, if we get past today. Um, but it's been on since the mid-'80s. Dr. Drew is the uh, a client of mine and had been hosting it forever. And um, we were doing it for MTV at the time on, t- on television, Love Light on television. And so I was seeing the MTV guys like, you know, three times a week. So I, I say to the MTV guys, I, I got this thing. You're not going to believe this, and it may, or may, if it's not for you, it's for for Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I show them, and they flipped out, flipped out. This guy's a star. Yeah, yeah I'm aware of that. All, all this stuff. So it was you who brought Tom to MTV. You, yes. You're the man who brought him here. That's correct. That's incredible. Keep going. I'm sorry. No, that's that's that story. Um, and the, the, we Tom. ended up at MTV. Um, that show lit fire. That was one of my favorite shows. I hear that ever. a lot, and yeah. I am happy to continue to hear it. It it, um, it just took fire. I mean, uh, I say this, I don't know if it's quite accurate, but he was on the cover of Rolling Stone six weeks after I brought him to the country. And um, and then the, uh, he ended up with uh, Drew Barrymore, and they, uh, they ended up getting married, and that was crazy time. And, and uh, the, the whole Tom era... It was interesting, and we, uh, uh, and uh, he ended up with testicular cancer after I think twenty nine shows on MTV. That's all there were. Um, I had to call up uh, the head of MTV and say I've got to talk to you, and I want to come over and just me and you. And uh, when when have you got time? He said, uh, "Well, come over at 11. Uh, okay, I'll be there at eleven. And I got Tom's agent. We had brought an agent on board. He and I go over to meet with this guy, and he makes us wait 45 minutes. Uh, I'm pretty sure he thinks we're coming in with a shotgun and we're going to hold him up. Because Tom wasn't making a lot of money on that MTV show. The show was as big as you get. It was being written about everywhere. I know he was certain we're coming in looking for more money. I go in there, and I ask that he be alone. And I walk into his office, and there's five guys behind him. I go, here we go. And you know how you can see the fastball coming? You know you're going to hit it out of the park. And I can see the fastball coming. I know I'm going to hit it out of the park because he thinks I'm coming in for more money, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. I know why I'm there. And he doesn't. But he thinks he knows. He thinks he's smarter than me. 
So he goes, all right, what can I do for you? I said, well, I've got some bad news. And he's waiting for me to say, I'm going to charge you three times the money. Mm-hmm. And I say, Tom's got cancer. And I watch the skin fall off his face. What, 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 what kind of what? It was testicular cancer. And um, they're going to get it. It's going to be operated on. Um, but um, he won't be able to do the show. Because what made that show work is he had to run around an awful lot. That was all real. You know, he was being chased by a mall cop. He was being chased by a mall cop. And wherever he was, he was being chased by somebody. And the doctors didn't want him running around for months. So he said, you know, it's months, maybe longer. And um, that was it. The show was done. We were able to do movies because you it was all set. A special about the cancer. We did. Here's what, here's how, what happened there. We, we ended up... Um, I'd go to the doctor with him all the time. And his parents were down from Canada uh, this one time. It was the last time we were going to see the doctor before the surgery. And um, it's, it's funny because uh, they would say, you got a 50-50 shot of this happening. And it was a, we, at that point, we knew what 50-50 meant. And there was a movie called 50-50 about two, three years ago, which was mm-hmm. just about this. We know what 50-50 means. It means 100%. You're in trouble. There's yeah. no such thing as 50-50. It gets as high as 50-50, you're screwed. So he said, there's a 50-50 shot that we're going to have to open you up and, and take out a testicle and then go up and grab the lymph nodes. Oh, great. So we're driving back from USC. His parents are in the back, and he's freaking out. And um, uh, he, he, I said, you know what? Don't freak out. He says, well, i got to freak out. The operation, I, I said... Here's what we're going to do. And he said, what? I said, you're going to treat this not as an operation. You're going to treat it as a bit. What do you mean? I said, we're going to shoot this thing for TV. This is a bit. It's not an operation. We're going to show the operation on television, mm-hmm. but it's a bit. So think of it as a bit. Put that into your cap. Yeah. And he said, well, wh- where are we going to? I said, tomorrow, first call out to MTV. I'm going to sell to MTV. You think you can? I said, yeah, I think I can. I call him up. I tell him what's going on. You know, they know what, that he's sick. I said, here's what I want to do. I want to shoot this, every foot of it. And I want to, I want to put it on television. Uh, first of all, testicular cancer is never talked about. Mm-hmm. It's within the demo, big time. That's when it hits, you know, in that young man demo. And... Well, what we found out is there's a lot of guys that are afraid to even say anything, and they end up, it gets too far, and they end up in trouble. So let's put this on TV. So I, I call up MTV, I say, let's do this. And they go, uh, no, it's not that funny. I go, hey, yeah, 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 we'll make it funny. Don't worry about the funny part. We'll fix that part for you. Mm-hmm. But we're going to make this an important show. And they come back to me, and they go, uh, all right, we'll give you half an hour. I said, I can't tell this story in a half an hour. It's, you can't. 23 minutes, you're not telling that story. Mm-hmm. I said, we need the hour. Well, we're not going to give you an hour. No, I'm in this crazy fight with these people. I said, come on. They said, well, we'll talk about it. We'll call you back later today. I said, because we got to move now. Because we got to start shooting now. we got to get everything. We need everything that's happening in his life around this now. They call me back that afternoon. They go, okay, you've got the hour. Oh, thank you very much. 
but we're only giving you a half hour budget. I said, oh, great. So I've got to shoot an hour and figure out how I get the other, the other half done or I've gotta, I gotta, I I, I just got to dilute this thing. Mm-hmm. We ended up making it work. And um, it's the special you saw. And it was uh, one of Time Magazine's top 10 TV shows of that year. So we're real wow. proud of that show. And it did, uh, Tom, I think, still gets notes from parents to this day because that thing's out there um, about, you know, thanks for saving my kid. My kid would have never said anything if they'd not seen this thing on television. And uh, I still want them to pay me that extra half hour, the bastards. (laughs) They should have put a portion in his driveway for crying out loud. I mean, they should have. But none of those people work there anymore, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. That was the story of the MTV cancer special. And, and uh, we're proud of that. Very proud of producing yeah, that. You should be. Yeah. And then you went on to, to work behind the scenes on The Man Show. Yes. And that came, I'm assuming, out of Loveline. You're working it, with that, uh, that happened a little different. It, it um, um, much longer story, and I'm trying to edit it. Uh, I ended up, um, we were taking Loveline to TV, and the co-host of the radio show with Dr. Drew wanted too much money. And the powers that be said no, and this thing's over. And we had like four days to find another co-host or we would miss the window of being able to get the the pilot done. So um, Dr. Drew had this, he said, there's this guy that comes in in the morning and does this, these bits called um, Mr. Bertram on the Kevin and Bean show on K, K-Rock in L.A. And uh, he's a funny guy. His name's Adam Carolla. I said, I don't, I don't know him. And it, it turns out Adam was in New York with Jimmy. And Jimmy and Adam were friends. They had become friends quite by accident. And, and they were in New York. It was the uh, MTV Video Music Awards. And Kevin and Bean morning show from K-Rock was in New York during their show from there. And um, we had somebody get in touch with Adam. And he'd come back for this screen test for Loveline. It's important. And he goes, now I've had many a screen test and none of them are ever important and I'm having too much fun in New York and <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Somebody got to him and sure enough, he decides to come back. And so we're having the um, screen test. It's a, a Drew and in comes the first guy and he was, he was okay, the first guy. And there were only two guys. So it was going to be this, the first guy and then um, Adam. And I don't, again, I don't know Adam. Producers don't know Adam. And Adam comes in, and Adam and Drew start, and within 30 seconds, you just know this is going to work. It was magic. I mean, it's like they'd known each other forever, and they knew each other five minutes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't let Adam get to the door before I signed him. And I'd never do that. But I had to have this guy. I could see that there was some, somebody home. Yeah. And he goes, well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody as well be. <laughs> I said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get you this show, knowing already he had it. And um, so we we put that together. And then Adam came to me a few weeks later and said, you know, my friend Jimmy uh, could really use your help. Would you mind meeting with him? I said, yeah, I don't mind at all. I had lunch with Jimmy. About halfway through, he's, he's a radio guy, and, and I'm a radio guy. And he's telling me about his 
trials and tribulations in radio, and he'd been fired from 10 radio stations. And I figured, if this guy's been fired from 10 radio stations, he's my guy. Good, yeah. This is, yeah, <laughs> radio guys are, they don't get it. So yeah. I, I signed him on the spot. And uh, one of the first things you do is uh, when you see somebody's got it to go the distance, and you can see Jimmy had it to go a a great deal. I didn't know where the distance was at that time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend I did. But here's a funny, funny human being and creative. So there's something there. So I sent him out on a lot of different auditions and stuff that I knew he wasn't going to get, but I wanted him to be in front of producers. And, you know, that's part of what we do. And uh, Jimmy calls me one day and he goes, I can't take it anymore. I said, well, what's the matter? He says, well, I just went on this thing. and Yeah. It's another show that they're trying to copy Oprah, and it's crap, and I don't want anything to do with it. And I, I'm sick of going out on all these shows that are for these women in the afternoon. And I'm just, you know, just, you know, we should have a show of our own. We should have a man show. And if I had any smarts whatsoever, here's where it came in. I said, you go write that up. Mm. And he did. One page I still have someplace wow. of the treatment of the man show. And I read it, and I sent it to the William Morris office, and I said, guys, let's sell this sucker. And uh, Adam was tied to the producers of Loveline, so they had to be brought in on it. Uh But that was, I don't think they ever liked that, but I had to get Adam on TV. Right. Um, So that was a concession. But but, um, we got... uh, Six or seven seasons out of that. The last season wasn't Jimmy and Adam. It was Joe Rogan and uh, Doug Stanhope. Stanhope yeah. yeah. And you saw, and you were with the show for the entire time. Yeah, I think I'm still with the show. Yeah, I know. I, I <laughs> think I'm still on there somewhere. If it was to come back, I'm not sure. Oh, great. And, but and, 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 but it, it doesn't work unless it's Jimmy and Adam. <laughs> Let's get it straight. And, <laughs> and were you with Jimmy uh, in, going into the the Jimmy Kimmel show? No, no, no. We had parted ways. Uh, amicably uh, half a year before. Is it tough when you build something with somebody like that uh, when it ends? Um, it depends on how it ends. It, it uh, That didn't end terribly. It was, you know, it was time. The man show was, they didn't want to do another season. Um, they were going to look around and see. Um, okay. And it was time. Hmm. Uh, I loved working with those guys, but that is, it's, it's the nature of the business. What do you think distinguishes you from other comedy managers, why you've been so successful? Well, I think there's guys that are more successful than me. Well, that's <laughs> you know, always the case. Always uh, uh, I don't know. Um, you, you know, you come in. I come into this office, and I don't think of myself as. I, I just it's it's my it's my job. I love what I do, and, and uh, you know, and, and not doing very much comedy anymore. Um, Why be, is that? Because um, I ended up getting into personality management and show business adjacent type things, which became fun. You know, how uh, how do you take a doctor and make him famous? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a challenge. Right. Uh, how to take a lawyer and make him famous? It's a challenge. Uh, d- different kinds of things like that. I, I started to play with and enjoy comedy. Um, comedy started to to the stand up business as successful as it was in the eighties. Started to kind of drift itself away in the early nineties, then came back strong again. But in that drift down, I kind of changed direction. 
And uh, uh, look, I, I'd put a lot of time in in the clubs, as you I, I know you do. You know, and it's uh, when you saw me at the Improv. I mean, the walls were talking to me. I hadn't been there in a while. You know, and and uh, I know every inch of that place, remodeled or not. I know every inch of that place, and and uh, I spent every night of my life in there. Uh, and I lived. Uh, at um, La Cienega, so it was two minutes from the Improv, the Comedy Store, and uh, the Laugh Factory. So I, I, I would make the rounds every night, every night, seven nights a week. Wow. And um, it started it, it started to get to a point where uh, uh, there's a lot of comics were getting derivative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was starting to hear it again, but out of different mouths. And not that anybody was stealing, but it was just, um, you know, I was hearing a lot of the same stuff. And I wasn't seeing anything that was new that I could really get excited about. And uh, I started to drift away from it. Um, you know, I'm still, you know, if I if I walk into a club, I automatically go to the back and I go into a zone. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking notes the second I get there. But I don't know who I'm looking at. I, I um, you know, so that's why I, I shouldn't be managing them. The, the, uh, you know, I could be looking at somebody that's already broken, and I don't know this, you right. know, or, or you know, I, I, or somebody that's being managed by a friend of mine, and I don't want to be approaching people and stuff right. like that. So, uh, so I, I enjoy it now. I enjoy teaching my kids about it. Uh, my daughter, who I was just on the phone with, she's at Emerson in Boston. Happens to be my alma mater, her mother's alma mater, mm-hmm. uh, and um, she's uh, she's going to start going up uh, at a club I set her up with. Uh, she, <laughs> she calls me a month ago and goes, "Do you know anybody that owns a club in Boston?" And go, yeah, what are you what are you looking for? She's well, I'm going to go up because she's a comedic actress, and, but she wants to develop some some time. I said, "Okay." And I get a hold of a guy that owns a club in Cambridge. And I said, you know, my daughter's in Boston. And she's looking for a place to call home and to go up every once in a while. And damn it, if I didn't get a note back from this guy that said, I've been waiting 30 years to pay you back. (laughs) She's got an open door. Whenever she wants to come in here, I'll give her a key. Terrific. Wow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I said, just make sure she stays on time. Just watch her stuff. That was very nice. So yeah, she she we'll see what she does. And so it continues. Yeah. It all. It's interesting that it all started from a radio gig in Ottawa. Well, yeah, it started a radio gig. Ottawa was along the way. It started uh, first time I was on the radio was in Buffalo, mm-hmm. in Boston. What was that, that Lebanese restaurant was in. Oh, the Lebanese restaurant was uh, in do you, Ottawa. And, do you uh, still get like a, a great feeling every time you go out? I like the Lebanese, Lebanese food. <laughs> I'm waiting for the jokes. I'm sitting in the back going, all right, who's next? <laughs> this was really a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. All right, everybody, that was a very sad episode, certainly, to know that that man is not with us anymore. It's strange hearing him talk about people who passed away in the interview, now knowing that he's no longer with us as well. But, you know, he uh, he was a guy who, had he maybe been younger and still 
managing stand-ups, uh, I would have asked him to manage me. He seemed like my kind of guy. He seemed sweet and genuine, and his heart was in the right place, and he had a genuine love for comedy and the art of it all. And I'm glad I got to know him a little bit, even for a little blip in time, enough to do that interview. And hopefully it's something that I can give the world on his behalf that he would enjoy you hearing. Howard Lapidus, may he rest in peace. A wonderful, sweet guy. And uh, again, I just want to tell you the information for my former manager who is very tragically murdered in his home and left behind a widow and two little children. You can help. Please do help. Send a Venmo to at the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund or a zeal to the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund at gmail.com or simply a check in the mail to the David Kimowitz Memorial Fund, 10 Prospect Road, Livingston, New Jersey, 07039. All right. We will return soon with the season finale of season nine of Modern Day Philosophers. It's a great one, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Until then, I'm signing off. This has been Daniel Lobel. And those lovely acoustic interludes of music that you heard were composed by none other than this show's very own audio master of mastering, Logan Heftel, the wonderful musician, Logan Heftel. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. And please feel free to write me at thecomical at yahoo.com for any reason, if only just to say hello. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>